0: everybody back. Terrific. P.S. that song is called The Clap by Bostich and Fusible of the Nortec Collective. It's you know Mexican electronic music. It just makes me happy. So picking up right now where we left off in part one with John Burdick VP and Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at the University of Rochester. In this one, I ask him, why is it so hard to figure out, quote, the real reason college costs what it does, unquote. We get into the issue of debt. What does it mean when a school says it practices need blind admission? And then we dig into some of the broader issues of money, uh, like in what ways does it impact the kids' application to college if they're rich or poor? And what is the Consortium on Financing Higher Education, or COFI? And what do they do? How does money play a role in colleges themselves competing with one another for the best applicants? Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. Visit CrushPodcast.com for other info. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod. Here is part two of my interview with John Burdick. So it seems that I'm constantly seeing among the flurry of news stories, you know, there's there's always one or two that pops up here and there that talks about it's like right in the headline you know the real reason college costs as much as it does or something as if you know and and it's there seems to be a lot of mystery shrouding the cost of college as if it, it like it, is this some sort of unknowable mystery about
1: why college costs as much as it does uh well Nonprofits like colleges are not subject to the same degree of audit level scrutiny as as publicly traded corporations. So there's not as
0: much information shared voluntarily and about so what
1: they spend their money on. I I, I not to, and they're not obligated to not to throw my my colleagues who run various parts of the college under the bus. Oh, but, go for it. But there is a lot of opacity in the budgeting process within colleges and colleges are doing what they, in a sense, colleges are fiduciary enterprises, just like a business. They are obligated to represent the best interests of their boards of trustees and their other constituents and their alumni. So if they are not revealing information that would be germane to, to describing their costs, they're doing that because they're not being made to. I'd be perfectly happy, and I think on average, the average person working at a college would be happy to have more sunshine and a larger level of scrutiny quarterly earnings reports and and more analysis that gets applied Where supply. does the pressure come from that? Well, that's that the Before only reason that happens to public corporations is because legislation was passed to make that happen and it's enforced by the SEC and other entities to make sure that corporations are held to a legal standard. We're not doing a particularly good job of that either by the way, but colleges are not even held to that standard. They produce annual reports not quarterly. I
0: mean, there's a lot of ma- there's a lot of anger about the price of college, but it's not like people don't feel like they're being cheated to this to the extent that it would that it would uh, necessarily actually, create a I
1: actually run into people think that. But but I, I think it's really important that we keep clarity in the concepts here. We've got we've got a a, a price that's charged always correct. We've got yes. an amount that is spent. And then we've got a cost. Yes. From my perspective, there are more things colleges can do to restrain costs. And I think that's an important thing for listeners to understand. I don't think that anybody of good conscience working in a college would say that they are operating at maximum secure, optimized efficiency in every way. That the price is
0: not being set to cover costs as needed and incur nothing beyond what they don't
1: well so the 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 price is being set by mechanisms like I described. It's more about the marketplace and, and what it will bear. And then the net price is being set at what the actual market will bear in a more direct way, in a more concrete way. But the actual costs, which is in the end, costs are an element in price, but they're they sort of operate independently, in other words why do we build rock walls and nice gyms and why do we have, you know, departments that we maintain after their usefulness and why do we add new departments, and all that kind of stuff. That cost stuff is definitely got some fuzziness to it. I think I had mentioned that it was related. I thought to the fact that we are not exposed to public review except once a year, whereas a publicly traded company is exposed quarterly and there's just sort of more attention to what's going on. Um, And so there, there might be a way to sort of get around this very quickly. But meanwhile, we're not being held as accountable as we might be on the cost side. And that's worth talking about, trying to figure out better ways to hold colleges more accountable and what their costs actually are.
0: What's keeping you from just voluntarily being more accountable about it?
1: I am. I mean, I, I think, and I think a lot of good individual employees at a college, individuals of conscience, are trying to be frugal and careful and thoughtful about how they spend the college's money. But that's not the same thing as saying the system is overall is built to 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 prioritize cost accountability. Um, there are real costs that colleges incur that I think the public knows nothing about. There's legal constraints and there's reporting requirements and there are actual neediness of students in new ways that require you know more investment in counseling services, more investment in other kinds of student services. Some of the stuff is very very real, but some of it is elective, meaning if you've got an employee long-term in place who isn't doing a very good job and then you've got this new function that needs to happen, it's a lot easier to create a different job and hire a new person into it than it is to take that old employee and force them to retrain and learn how to do the new thing. Mm -hmm. And when you, I mean, that's obvious in the case of tenure. You've got a faculty member who's tenured in an area or field that's becoming like an area of research in physics that is now considered a dead end. There is nothing to do with it. That guy's still sitting there with his tenure, still getting his salary, still teaching his classes, and you can't do much about it. But it even happens, as far as I can tell, in questions of staff. So staff get grandfathered along in a way that in a corporate world, they'd be mustered out quick because they're doing something that's obsolete and they're not very good at it anymore. That's not happening at colleges to the degree that that I think is is right and that I would like to see.
0: Moving beyond... Being in college and what what the tuition actually pays for, you've got the most sort of infuriating um, news item today among particularly millennials. They're up in arms about student debt, and student debt is the worst thing in the world. It's higher than it's ever been. Um, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, there the student, seems to be a great deal of of hyperbolic language around I, student debt. I, I, and I understand it as somebody that feels like, like I made the choice to go to graduate school and take all that on myself, which is a lot. But I also have the benefit of a public service loan forgiveness program that was not there. Thanks Obama. it was not there. <laughs> no, really, actually, thank you. Um, it was not there before, you know, I was in graduate school. And so that makes things a lot easier. But um, but I made that choice, you know what I mean? And I, and I can't get well, too mad about yeah,
1: that. Yeah, I draw a big line here between undergraduate student debt and graduate student debt, because graduate student debt, debt by and large, is always a choice. There's always been yes. a fairly sophisticated calculation that it's worth me taking out these loans because of the professional development that it gives me mm-hmm. to go out and get a better job. Mm-hmm. And so that's I would set that to one side. That's typically an adult decision. Yes. It's got this whole big baseline of information. It when often, I get mad about it, that's it what I often get comes mad about. somewhat later in life. <laughs> that was my own, well, own dumb truth. To tell it wasn't the, truth, the dumb people, truth. people the do truth. end up regretting spending money on master's degrees that don't have a lot of connection to anything. And mm-hmm. there are certain categories of master's degrees that, if you calculate it out, they don't always pay for themselves. Like you can get a great, great education in a master's of social work program but you still have to contend with the fact that social workers are paid only x amount of dollars in right. our society. So, so
0: when we talk about like student that. debt today and particularly, you know, around the, the you know, the the fury that people are feeling around it and looking at the raw figures and and the fact, you know, and there are people that are calling for a mass default on debt, like go for it, do it on purpose because that's the only oh. way we're going to do. It. You know, like what what do you think we're really talking about when we're most talking of about people student, being angry about student most debt? Most of the
1: student debt problem is I want to say radically overstated, Um, there was a period, and we are actually already working ourselves out of that period, although there's still a few high-profile cases to go, there was a period where the for-profits were coming online with no admission standard whatsoever. So they were taking anybody that could breathe, they were making sure that they assigned their price at exactly the price of a Pell Grant subsidy plus Maximum student loan from the government subsidized student loan, so so no risk to anybody except the taxpayer. You, you're gonna you're gonna spend money on Pell grants, and you're gonna spend money on subsidizing loans that people might default on. So the taxpayer is completely on the hook. It was it was socialized risk, and then corporate capitalist profits. That's exactly the industry that was allowed to grow so and this grow is and like grow. A Corinthian that just went Corinthian, on it, right? well, even the University of Phoenix, you know, which might be the their the biggest, maybe it's too big to fail, but it's the same model. They were going out and getting as many bodies as they could, making sure that they got access to the full close to 13000 dollars making sure that the price that they charged was roughly about the same. So there was no sense of So the problem was the students coming in had no uh, vetting to make sure that they were really ready for this experience or ready to be successful they had no skin in the game of their own in terms of actually spending money on their education every who was on the hook when they started to fail out and default in large numbers well, and that was, was the taxpayer all the way through so and we've there was had an inflated sense of the so value we've got of this that massive degree problem too. meanwhile all the non not-for-profit schools that have been using student loan debt responsibly for 50 years before that and for all the years since have just been cooking along just as you'd expect. For instance, there was a massive retrenchment in the propensity to borrow from 2008 on so that the total amount of debt of my University of Rochester graduates did not grow $1 from 2009 to 2013 because families just weren't taking out as many loans. They were being careful Mm -hmm. because of the great stock market issues and then the joblessness and everything else. So consumers at places like mine were doing exactly what they'd done all along. We were managing it as exactly as responsible as we had. The results are still the same. There's no high default rate. People are still getting the jobs, allow them to pay back their student loans. Everything is doing just what it did the same way successfully for decades. But this other bubble got created mostly Mm -hmm. around the for-profits without much of a legislative response, except, you know, thank God soldier Tom Harkin was saying, there's something wrong here, you know, forever. And the Obama administration has largely taken that up. Arnie Duncan was largely taking that up and and really going after and tackling this for-profit model in ways that are almost patently ridiculous, in that you have to start there. They started with trying to put in legislation that said the for profits had to collect at least ten percent of their revenue from something other than federal dollars. It, it was it was it was the most massive self imposed wound of a public financing scheme and subsidy that ended up lining the pockets of investors who were private Mm -hmm. it's 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 just i mean there was a lot of criminal stupidity here but it really in essence had nothing to do with student loans itself it had everything to do with the structure student loans being exploited by some very smart people who started colleges that didn't mean anything and and anybody that doesn't know that and thinks that what i'm saying can't possibly be true is not paying attention you've got branch campuses closing by the thousands you've got students who've been displaced not graduating defaulting on loans you know, running into the millions and you're talking about billions of dollars and this was all happening and people just weren't paying attention to it. And that's all getting lumped in this idea of student debt being out of control, but it's only a very specific kind of student debt that ever got out of control. And it, it bugs me because even reputable newspapers like the New York Times, for some reason, have not been able to put a single journalist right on this problem and figure out exactly for what it was, or it's just starting to come out now. But some of us were screaming about this in 2005, going, "Look what's happening! Look, look what's, look, look what you've done! You've, mm-hmm. you've, you've literally given people profits, and you've socialized the risk so that all of us bear the expense. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's outrageous." So, but it doesn't hurt the average student graduating from the average good college in the United States. Their their business has has not changed. It's exactly the same as it always was.
0: So the for-profit colleges come and in the proverbial cheerios of the responsible higher ed lending yes. and
1: borrowing world yes very much so
0: and uh and they as didn't a, apologize for it or anything which <laughs> yeah that's, that's in not- fact
1: they tried to lure me and other, I, I can't tell you how many solicitations i got from for-profit places they they, they um they hit it they said we're in the online world. This is the new world mm-hmm. of higher education, and then Bill Gates and other people sort of bought into this that education was suddenly going to become a completely online experience, as if anybody wanted to acquire all their education online.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have I have a question about two measure Oops. measurements that we use to talk about you know the value of an education, and you know I don't throw around a lot of statistics when I'm talking to families on the road and stuff, but one of them that's interesting, and I think it's always it's always instructive um is the default rate which you mentioned earlier saying that less than one percent of borrowers at the university of rochester have actually default on their loans and so what you know one interpretation of that is to say that these students are getting you know or well the arguable interpretation of that is to say that students are getting the jobs that they need to that are that are that are justifying the investment that they've made in the forms of their loans i always wondered like are we sure that they're like, are they also able to like pay rent and other stuff? Or are they just doing enough to get their student loans paid? Are well, they,
1: you know, are they, it, is it, it, are they baristas it, it, and getting their student loans paid, or are they a, doing
0: things relative to what they love and enjoy as a result well, of studying in college? Like so,
1: I, I'm not sure your second question actually matters. Meaning, if students are doing,
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. No, no I mean, matter, if, if <laughs>
1: students are doing what they need to do to to live. And and presumably doing at least something what they want to do, then it doesn't matter whether it specifically relates to their degree or not. Mm-hmm. In other words, I just, I just ran into a friend in the grocery store who is bartending with his dual degree in anthropology and religion. But when I've talked to him about it many, many times over this five, six years since he graduated, he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And he's getting better at it and he's rising to be the... The leader of the bartenders and making more money that way, and being potentially an owner, part mm-hmm. share owner of things. So, you know, people make Doing fine. people right. make all kinds of choices about that kind of stuff. And this yeah. is a guy who's paying back his student loans. So, I, I think your second question is sort of irrelevant yeah. in that we never said get this degree. Like, we didn't say get it's a history a, degree and become a historian. Become a historian. It doesn't work that. that way. Yeah, um, or get a psychology degree and become a psychologist. The, yes. the, the, those are different things. Yes, but but it is true also that the default rate is. Uh, well, I think it's a very meaningful statistic in this sense. They're not becoming a burden on the taxpayer or the public trough. They're not becoming a public policy issue. So they're so self-sustaining. So the, so the productive way that they're doing it, it, it varies a lot. A very large fraction of ours are going to graduate school right. and deferring their loans, their undergraduate loans, until they have a graduate degree that makes it even mm-hmm. easier for them to have a certain kind of income. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to apologize for that. people say, oh my God, they had to go to graduate school to make use of their undergraduate degree. And I said you just you flipped it around. They got an undergraduate degree that allowed them to get into a graduate school that then gives them more opportunities mm, beyond because yeah. there are plenty of undergraduate degrees that don't particularly do that very well. They don't always set you up for a great undergrad for a great graduate school experience that's going to get you more. So that's that's fine. If you've deferred for a while and then you've got a graduate income, a lawyer, a doctor, or something even you know more modestly remunerative, And you are still managing to pay back your loans, fantastic. Um, Some of them, frankly, are going and living at home and saving money by living with mom and dad, and they're prioritizing their student loans. And there is something very disturbing about that because student loans are the one kind of loan you're never allowed to write off. You can't get out of it by declaring bankruptcy, you can't
0: die. and get rid of
1: them. I think I think death actually does cancel them. But but it, know. okay, you uh, <laughs> yeah they can't Fine. It, unless you maybe if you have a big estate they can come after it somehow. I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, but basically, yeah, student loans have got this special status, even ahead of credit cards and everything else. And so students are doing what they have to do to pay them because they have to. Um, which mm-hmm. is an interesting piece of legislation that you know the risk is not there, but. Somewhere in that mix, you have to say, yes, the value of getting a degree is still coming out beyond college in better, higher income opportunities mm-hmm. through one way, shape, or form. And those data are indisputable. The, the, even during the depths of the, 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 the depression or the Great Recession, 2009 through 2011, 2012, all the data show that college graduates were less likely to be thrown out of work less likely to not get work, less likely to have wage stagnation. It's the non-college graduates that suffered the most, as they have in every other cycle, boom or bust, going back for as long as I can remember, and, and your whole lifetime at least. So there may be, I think this is a really kind of an important question, there may well be diminishing returns to the value of having a college degree, having a bachelor's degree, as more people have them, that's logical, the more people have something, the less value it has per se. But that doesn't mean there isn't still an enormous value between having a degree and not. That that gap seems to be widening even faster. Mm-hmm. So now there's there's a lot of people that in my circles that say, well, you know, ultimately to to make any serious money, you're going to have to have a graduate degree. Well, well and good. That's what they were saying when I was young about getting a college degree. You couldn't get by with a high school degree anymore. You had a high school diploma. You had to have a college. Another to get function something. of economics, right? And here's the question: That's that's probably true. And is that such a wrong thing? Meaning, as society becomes easier to sustain, you know, we've got more automated kinds of systems. We've got the Internet of Things that's taking care of everything for us. Wouldn't it normally be the case that more and more education is available? and is choosable, and that's what's actually going to predict your uh, your ability to be creative and successful and interesting. In other words, more of a investment of foundation up front to reap more of a benefit behind, wouldn't that sort of make sense? You, you, it's not as bad a deal to spend the first 27 or 28 years of your life in formal education if everything beyond that is going to be better for you than it used to be, a lot easier for you. You're not going to have to work as long of a day to just put the food on your table. Mm. You're going to get that done in a heartbeat because all kinds of resources are helping put food on your table very efficiently. Mm. So now you take that rest of your education and you do all the other things that are worth doing in that time that day, all the creative and interesting things you can do to have a meaningful and interesting life. And so you put more of your years up front into getting to that point. Mm -hmm. That, 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 That stands to reason for me. In fact, if you look at every society in history, the more... Advanced and evolved, and sort of the happier you expect that society was, and the fraction of its people that were happy and fulfilled, the more likely there had been an increasing investment in the share of education that they received. That's yeah. the whole business. It it's sort of, it, it just sort of makes sense.
0: So there are a handful of other sort of buzzwords or um, you know terms of art that that uh, we use in college too, with, when it comes to to money need-blind and need-aware, what do, what do those mean? And when can a school say that they are one or the other?
1: Need-blind means that a college admission office reviews applications without making any reference to a student's ability to pay. In practice, well, let me say, in public statements about their policies, you will probably find a very large fraction of at least flagship public colleges. Maybe maybe in a sense all public colleges are need-blind. And a healthy list of private colleges and universities will claim to be need-blind as well. At the private colleges, at least those that are even remotely tuition-dependent, and that is frankly most of them, it's probably the case that they're not 100% need-blind, meaning there is an awareness when it is... Even if they say they are? Even they might say that they are. How can you reconcile that? Well, an admissions counselor has access to information that could be guiding his or her choices if they're aware that there's any kind of tuition sensitivity. In other words, if they know that tuition, think about it. If you know that the net tuition coming into that college is a factor that helps pay your salary, you're probably operating with some consciousness that you can't willfully ignore families coming in with some means to pay and you can't willfully embrace that every single needy student is a high priority for then it. Then I
0: peg that tightly to like my ability to pay my rent, you know, I mean, it, it's, but I get what you're saying. It's more kind of like, you know, if I, I know that, so for instance, like if I say, I mean, is it fair for me to say that, does it work this way? Rich kids pay for poor kids. So by which I mean, if we enroll more students who can afford the cost of attendance, then I can also meet my little, you know, liberal hopes, dreams, and goals, and rainbows of of being able to enroll more students who can't pay because they're effectively subsidizing the cost of attendance for those students and paying their financial
1: aid. This this is getting into the arcana of individual colleges and how they manage their finances and what their sources and, and resources are. But I will say that it's certainly my belief that there are several, maybe even many colleges across the United States where the tuition paid by those paying the full tuition price is helping to subsidize the tuition not paid or paid for, for lower income students. There is some subvening going on. I don't think that that's always the case or is always an explanation for the, the price tag that they pay. Because... The other phenomenon is true where the actual price of instruction per student or the price of the academic resources per student is higher than the tuition that anybody is paying. So everybody's getting a subsidy. It may be that the, the, the kids paying the nominal full tuition price are getting more or less exactly what they pay for, but they're not also paying for the Subsidies that the other student's getting, those subsidies are coming from other sources.
0: So it's hard to say then. I mean, that an admission staff of readers of application readers might necessarily have gotten a directive from somebody higher up on the food chain than them saying, you know, we need need more people who can pay the full cost of attendance. Um, therefore, but I'd be willing to be
1: conversation. I would, I'm going to say 90% more than 90%. More than 90% of the private colleges and universities in the United States that conversation is happening on some level or another and it is intruding its way into the process in and some place and it's it's probably closer to 95 or 98%. And
0: I can't, you know, I mean and I I know this is the case in our office like we, you know, One definition of need blind is I can't see the tax returns of the families that are applying. I can't see their real assets and and how much money they have. That
1: technical definition of need blind is being met by a larger fraction of colleges. So that's
0: that's that's the probably the safest definition for people to assume is going on in the minds of college admissions professionals when they say need blind is that we're not looking at the admissions people
1: are partitioned from, from that. That's, that's probably the only definition that has real meaning
0: because after that, then I can look at, you know, because while I can't see the tax returns, I can see that both parents are from Scarsdale and one's a doctor and one's a lawyer. And I, and, I and understand what that means in this.
1: Even at a place that has, you know, let's, let's just take Harvard as the quintessential example. Harvard's everybody else does. Yeah. Well, but why but, not? It, it, it is appropriately said, even despite what I said earlier about restricted versus unrestricted endowment, and Harvard stands on that a lot, but they've got a $40 billion endowment. Somewhere in that mix, they've got the ability to basically write off the tuition of every potential student coming in. Even at a place like Harvard, the readers are going to know which families have means and which do not. It is It is, in essence, it is part of what they have to do even if you think that their intentions are entirely beneficial towards the low-income families. They want low-income students, then they need to be able to recognize what a lack of education or a certain kind of job category or divorce or separation or widowhood or any of the kinds of things that contribute to a household having less money, that's in their mix of things that they analyze as part of what they're putting forward. So even a place that says they're need blind and means it, not only that you don't have access to the data, but that they don't care, they actually do care they're actually just favoring the students who are needier the
0: you know exemplified example of harvard having more money than you know bloomberg gates and denmark combined in an endowment uh should have every reason to take finances not into account necessarily at all and be just a completely pure academic meritocracy is not doing that, and, and in fact, therefore, no one can really say that they're doing
1: that. Yeah, I'm not sure. They they probably wouldn't necessarily agree with me that looking for low-income students, it, it stops them from being need-blind. The problem is need-blind has become a brand in its own right. Places want to, they, they, they scramble to call themselves need-blind because that's considered a mark of prestige it in sounds, a certain
0: and way. It sounds very fair, too.
1: Right. Well, yeah. So Fair, very fairness moral as, a, and... as a source of prestige. Yeah, it's an, it's the ethical place to be. Uh, I'm not 100 that it, sure that it's true because if you are fully need blind, but at the same time, a, a a significant fraction of your students struggle to graduate, it's it's a very likely bet that among those who struggle to graduate, they're disproportionately needy. So you are you are potentially still at risk of saddling students with student debt. That they can't pay back because they can't actually earn a degree. At so it goes place. the other way. So
0: I think that's one of the other things I think I just sort of fell victim to myself, and I realized just now, which is to say that some places need need a aware, or to be need aware is also in a very very good thing in the instance where you feel like you are generating real access for people who otherwise wouldn't have the Absolutely. ability to pay.
1: the The problem that comes into it is. This is going back, I don't know, maybe 60 years, 50, 60 years. There was this attempt to say, okay, now we've got need-based financial aid. We've got Pell Grants, we've got Perkins programs, all this stuff, Stafford, all this stuff got put into place to help needy students be able to go to all the colleges, public, private, everywhere. And for a while, when they were first created, these programs, it was a great society program. These programs actually did... Close the gap between what somebody needed and what it costs to go to that place, and so everybody could go, and you didn't have to make. So it made sense. Need blind was a concept that grew up out of that. Uh, your meaningful need and your need blind, and and it's the right thing to do. But your financial ability to pay, your 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 financial wherewithal, your circumstances is a part of who you are. It, it, we we ignore that to our peril, and 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 a lot of places, Rochester included often use the fact that somebody is needy as a basis to want to admit them, to want to recognize how amazing it is that they've achieved what they've achieved despite having economic dislocation and deprivation and, and circumstances. And that becomes a basis to want to admit them. So
0: that's interesting. You know, be and, and I'm reminded of, I've gotten this question a lot in the circle where I, you know, run around the burbs of New York city. I have heard from several people, um, that they're a little bit afraid that um, maybe their son has had too advantaged a life and is as a result uh, maybe not that interesting. That you is, know
1: that is dead on true. Uh, if, if in other words, if you've if your child has grown up in circumstances, I, I won't say so much that it's privileged it's privileged and inoculated and insulated and hidden from the realities of the world. Can that have a negative impact on your, on your attractiveness to, especially to the most elite colleges? You're damn right. It can. In in other words, that is a genuine danger is that in making the world completely safe and completely vanilla so that the most deprivation your child can access in writing their college essay is that they at first got a B in math and then they worked really, really hard and got that up to an A, then you are you are incurring some risk. You should probably be thinking about designing genuinely interesting and more appropriate challenges for your child to get through whatever it is. But if, you're, not- if you're inclined to do outward bound, do that. If you're inclined to go drop them at a suburban shopping mall, four miles from your home, and see if they make it home safe and alive. I have do that.
0: Never heard do, that one, but I would
1: love to see that. Do things that, would be that a great
0: essay. And 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 and, and My um, parents are batshit crazy. They dropped me off at a mall and told me to. Well, that, home. that was
1: that was in uh, Modern Family. I'm quoting from a TV oh, episode, but but, but 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 of course, um, only in fiction. Uh, I'm forgetting the name now. The the dean at Stanford who just wrote the book, the the parent book,
0: Lithcott Hames. Yeah,
1: yeah, Julia Lithcott Hames. She wrote, I think, a third of the way through the book. She didn't have to read the whole thing, but a third of the way through the book, she said, "Here's the three rules," and I think the especially affluent parents should put these rules on a big card and laminate it and stick it everywhere they can think of. Am I doing something my child can do for themselves? Stop. Am I doing something my child can almost do for themselves? Stop. Watch as they as they actually do it, so that there's a development and a learning there, and and then the third one, which is snarky but really true, is am I doing this just to pad my own ego? And if if any of those things, if you're answering yes to any of those questions, you just have to stop doing that. You have to let your child get into some scraps and scrapes and developmental challenges that will actually give them a chance to develop into interesting human beings. It doesn't necessarily hurt you to be affluent. But it hurts you to be affluent and to use that as a basis to not actually live anything like a real life.
0: But how much of, you know, because you mentioned outward bound and stuff like that. And these are, you know, and I know these, I've seen recommendations from people like Bill Like He writes at the end of his book, you know, that one of the things we should start doing in selective college missions is stop being impressed by achievements that um, students list in the application process that were um, achieved by having the means to achieve them.
1: I'm I'm talking about something. I think it's getting all caught up in our, you know, me generation stuff going back to the 60s and and every generation since sort of doubling down on that. So we are the me, 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 me generation now. I'm talking about something much simpler, which is sort of an old Victorian ideal. What are we doing to ensure that our, our children develop character? That they have good grades and that they have good resumes is one thing. what are we doing to ensure that they actually become good people?
0: Well the turning the tide turning the tide is a
1: is a step in that <laughs> right direction it's an exactly that idea but I, I think we've stopped thinking about it very much and and we need to think about it again what makes our what what are we doing to make our children Genuinely strong, good people, as opposed to people who look good to colleges, because those aren't the same thing. Do you think that uh, low-income students are restricted
0: to study things that have a more clear
1: pre-professional outcome? Well, I just spent the weekend with a bunch of like ninety low-income students, so this is this is top of mind for me. Uh, One of the big things that got a whole lot of finger snaps around the room was when somebody read out uh, the. Line that one of them had written and was got put up on a piece of butcher paper on the wall that said, Well, I'm low income now, but I'm going to be part of the 1% soon. So you got to think the number one thing that drives somebody who has managed, by the way, for some of these students, it was really powerful to hear this. They only figured out they were low income when they were asked to check that box on an admissions application. In other words, they thought they were maybe a little better off than their peers in their neighborhood around them. And then somebody said, Well, what's your actual income? Oh, it's under forty thousand. Well, you're low income. Check that box. First time they ever thought of themselves as being poor. It was a revelation to them. But basically, once you've at, at whatever point you've defined that I'm pretty low income and education my means forward, then yes, a big part of why you're using education is to not be low income anymore. That is what any of us would say. It, it's it sounds great to say somebody's low income and all they want to do is study Shakespeare and and be very well educated, but that's not fair. It's not even a reality. So uh, so yeah, you're going to find a disproportionate share of low income students pursuing engineering, maybe medicine, and maybe some people are going to say that's medicine, not for exactly the right reasons or law or business or anything that sounds like that's going to give them what they aspire to have a nice house in the suburbs and a pretty spouse.
0: So I happen to know that University of Rochester is part of a, by definition, elite organization called COFI.
1: Yes. Which stands for the... Consortium on Financing Higher Education.
0: And this is a a group of schools that is, you know, I mean, it's full of names that everybody's heard. Some we've already mentioned. What is it? And what
1: do you do there? So this is the set of schools that back in the 70s when they first organized wanted to take responsibility for this question of how do people from all walks of American life and all income levels have the opportunity to use our places as engines of transformation to better their lives, to rise to a different point. It's the eight Ivy League schools. It's 12 other prominent research universities. It's 10 of the great liberal arts colleges and all five of sort of the top rated women's colleges. So it's, it's a, it's a, It's a set of people where when you work there, you probably went through a few rounds of of advancing responsibility. Uh, You probably know a thing or two about how things work in the real world, and, and especially in the world of higher education that you're responsible for. And we have many, many different kinds of dialogues, and we share data. And that's the biggest thing, is that we pool our data so that what happens at any one college, which can be distorted and wrong, is... Uh, more likely to be right because it's averaged over a wider set of colleges with more information. So in that sense, and 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 sharing data that colleges typically don't share, because remember I always described that colleges typically obscure what they do. In Kofi, you're not obscure. You're providing a lot of detailed individual record data about what's going on so that you can Compare and really understand and and produce trends and analyses that are helpful to everybody. All the data, Kofi data, are collected are then turned into reports that are par- publicly marketed and are used as part of the dialogue. and 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 Kofi has a lobbyist in Washington that present these data, and and so it's 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 not it's only hidden in the sense that the individual data that these thirty five colleges and universities turned in doesn't become data that goes out as those colleges, but as that entire it's set, grouped as a uh, yeah, right. uh, the the entire set of Kofi data is publicized okay. several times around the year. Yeah.
0: So, what have been some of the well, it's it's co- it's, Kofi, it's Kofi
1: data that uh, demonstrated very persuasively to the Kofi presidents, to those of us in admissions and financial aid, that we have a genuine problem with what we are expecting from middle-income families. So, the changes you're seeing in 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 you know, arguments we make for public policy and our own analyses on our campuses and the kinds of directions we're taking financial aid and and subsidy to support middle-income families is coming out of Kofi analysis and data. So it's, it's, it may not be, it's not every kind of effect that you want to have. Um, I mean, I think there's a broader set of schools where it would be nice to collect the same data and have more information. But, uh, but Kofi is a, a pretty responsible bunch.
0: Why don't more schools get to, is the I mean is there like a membership application or
1: Oh, yeah, we just let in four more schools. And so there there have been places trying to get into Kofi for What
0: decades. governs the number of schools that participate in, in the what's the like school, is there the like a leadership schools, structure? How does Yeah, it the member
1: work? schools vote on new members. So the 30, it was 31 schools for quite a long time and something I think it was took 3 quarters of the current members had to vote to let four new members in. And so is there like a
0: hundred knocking down the gates to try to join sure, Kofi?
1: Sure. If you're if you're a if you're trying to better yourself as a college or university, the chances are pretty good that you'd like to be in Kofi and you'd like to be part of that data sharing.
0: What what benefits accrue to the school that joins Kofi?
1: They've got access to all the other school's data. Like Vanderbilt just got in. And if you're Vanderbilt Let's say Vanderbilt worries about losing students to Washington University in St. Louis, Northwestern, Chicago, and Duke. Maybe Georgetown, Johns Hopkins. Those are all Kofi schools. So now you've got access to know what goes on at those places. You can set policies based on that access that allow you to better compete. It's a more level playing. Field. What benefit so does why,
0: why would why would Chicago, Wash U, and, and Northwestern agree to let this this competitor rabble into their uh, their club?
1: Because because the same thing is happening in their world, they're losing more students to Vanderbilt, so they want to know what Vanderbilt's doing. So
0: is it just that the you know the concentric circles of overlap, or the you know various sea of Venn diagramming schools of overlapping admissions pools is is creeping so outwards, I, 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 and that's I think, what I, I think determines that's, the membership a little I think, bit.
1: I think that's the incentive. The incentive is to bring in those people whose information you'd like to share. I mean, what what they we will say is that. We're doing it so that we can be more responsible uh, in terms of trying to help set the public policy agenda with respect to financial aid in particular and to some other things as well. Um, But in deciding which schools you're going to bring in, one of the things you think about is, would I like access to this school's data?
0: And Rochester's been a member since you've been at Rochester. From the beginning. And from since before you were there, but... um, so that you've been involved in a lot of
1: conversations with this group. Yeah, um, I love Rochester's position in Kofi because in the in the in the scheme of the Kofi hierarchy, Rochester's relatively a have not. So Harvard's got a forty billion dollar endowment, Yale's got a twenty three billion dollar endowment, MIT's got an eleven billion dollar endowment. We're we're pretty far down the scale at two billion, and, and as a share of our eleven thousand students, you, you know, even even a little bit worse. So. What's fun at Kofi, at the admissions meetings, the financial aid meetings, you know, and I've been to a couple of the general assembly meetings for Kofi, Harvard being Harvard can speak and say something that sounds like the most responsible thing to do in higher education because Harvard doesn't have to care. Harvard's not trying to position itself against anybody, so it can really... Take a principled, analytical look at the general landscape and say, "This is what we think is the right thing to do." That doesn't mean Harvard isn't also in it for themselves, but they are. They can articulate the right way to go, and then everybody else, starting with Yale and then Princeton and Stanford and down the line, they have to navigate their their position and their commentary and their choices against Harvard because it's consequential. What Harvard does, it's it's almost exactly how it goes every time harvard starts harvard starts everybody responds everybody else responds basically to harvard with their own thinking i don't i don't my counterparts in admissions financial aid and other leadership they are thoughtful credible people they've given a lot of great thought to this but they are conscious to one degree or another of where they fit vis-a-vis this gold standard that is harvard but i get to come in as rochester and rochester doesn't really care or i personally am not inclined to care (laughs) yes and 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 and, and, you as representative of it's not like something rochester does is suddenly going to flip the equation and we're going to steal a lot of kids from from cornell much less harvard i mean we and we do we steal our our kids from from cornell and some other places yeah but we do it on the basis of being different being Mm -hmm. iconoclastic being sort of a rebel within that environment and so I have the liberty to not worry about what I say and how it positioned me against Johns Hopkins or or uh, or uh, whatever Oberlin, somebody who just went right before me and I'm getting down to my level. I just can just say whatever I want to say, what I what I actually think is true. so it's it's a very hmm. it's a very fun group to be part of for me for that. and consequently, I get to be a hero because usually there's the lead person who has to talk and then the juniors are all sitting around listening like the the mere directors and not deans. and all the directors come up and go, Thank you for saying what we thought was true, Tim. It's like, yeah, I got to just be completely honest. It's, it's for a, instance, it's like blast. when
0: have you had the chance to do that? Where you you were able every, to really every just every two
1: of- years we have the uh, Kofi admissions conference, and uh-huh. we get we you know we we get we get real. We we mm-hmm. we talk, and I get to say what looks to me like the truth from a general landscape perspective. Because I'm not really a fretting about whether pride on I'm not fretting about whether somebody's going to steal Rochester's secret. You know, mm-hmm, it's not the mm-hmm. same thing. So, is there been
0: an instance or something in there where that you're okay talking about? Where you were like, I said this, and I thought that was a.
1: It's every instance. My mm-hmm. favorite um, was <laughs> so the Kofi admissions retreat is every two years. We'll have another one this upcoming June at the June 2014 retreat. I guess that's right. I feel like it should have been 2012, but I think it must be 2014. Um, I mentioned that the University of Rochester decided to implement a, a, a sort of a Federal Express level process in its admissions tracking where it made it possible for students to see exactly where their application was including seeing that it was in the hands of their first reader or their second reader right so this is something i experience i I see
0: students i'm reading their applications so so i can see students students can see where they are in the continuum of i
1: see that you're my second reader and you're about to look at my application can i talk to you about something or something just happened to me and when i mentioned that i was doing that harvard just looked impassive and like they couldn't care almost everybody else in the room goes wait why did you do that without telling us? You know what does this mean for us? Are we going to be expected to held to the same standard? Why are you doing that? It's like I don't care that it's you so care. I just, <laughs> I'm just so glad that I don't have to. I don't have to play a game in hmm. that group. That's nice.
0: What's the risk to those who feel like maybe they have to?
1: giving away a trade secret uh you know the, the in other words if you're like what would
0: it be like I'm um, this is the thing like when people talk about secrets in the college admissions like the things that sell books at barnes noble and noble in that section of the bookstore it's like the, the real secret uh, to getting into blah, 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 whatever but like trades like what is an example of a trade secret like what would be not tell a real one but like what would be like the what would I mean, or tell a real one that'd be great radio but what what would like, What are people well, afraid of sharing? A,
1: a really good example that's related to something we were talking about earlier is in 2006-7 it might have started in 2004 at Princeton actually um, these the Ivy League schools and a pretty big fraction of the best endowed liberal arts colleges too came out every couple of months or so with an announcement about their new financial aid policy they were going to be a no loan place they were going to not charge tuition at a certain threshold of income. They were going to uh, set caps on the amount of expenditures at certain levels of income. They did all this stuff. They all did it. It's clear. They did it in reaction to what somebody else is doing. And the mechanism whereby that happened is not peer-to-peer at my level. It's somebody's on the board at Harvard. Harvard comes out with an announcement about what they consider need-based financial aid to be and how they're going to run it. And then somebody who's Plays squash with a board member at Yale says Harvard's doing this. It's a big thing. It's coming, and somebody at Yale goes, "Oh my God! How are we going to still compete for these students? And how are we going to still be notified and have this prestige? How am I going to be able to hold my head up unless Yale is also doing something for low-income students? If is also doing something in the space of no loans. In other words, how can we possibly let Harvard do this and not have an answer or response and keep up in some way? So. Now the board at Yale is suddenly abuzz with the need to do something like this. So these are, these are the kinds of analyses and positioning that um, uh, some of these places have to. So do So it's not with so much other.
0: a trade secret. It's not like I have an, you know, I I have an H bomb and they don't. You know, it's it's a it's a matter. It's a it's a keeping up with the Joneses thing. It's a partly.
1: You know, I mean, you you you're trying to keep your advantage, but the details of how you decide to do it. Is something that you think is your best foot forward and is consistent with your own values and your population. But and why did that? I are. mean,
0: and it's not, and you know, it's not that it's not that places that we continue to mention in this conversation and in life, uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, etc. Um, it's not that they need to remain competitive. Yes, they do. Why? Why do they need to remain relevant or anything? They they could they nothing could they could die on the Ivy Vine and still be
1: Harvard. Still be Harvard? Yes. Still, be anything else? No. In other words, it's it's not it's not much more than a, a one full generation that all of the Ivies have been considered elite places. That some of them had to scrap their way to having that real status. There's only one the 60s, place 70s, that's 80s. actually been here since the
0: 17th century, isn't it? right? Worth
1: it, right? So there, there's a first mover advantage at Harvard in everything, mm-hmm. and everything that else, everybody else does is measured against that. Um, you know, Stanford's trying to establish that there's a a West Coast thing they have that has nothing to do with the East Coast and therefore it is its own animal. And they're having some success at that because the West Coast is a long way away and it's its own animal in some important respects. But nonetheless, uh, Harvard is ranked number one worldwide, not just in this country. Every university of any stature in this country has a board of people that want to have their alma mater or the place that they're connected to the place they make their donations have some fraction of that stature, not just locally, but nationally and internationally in many cases, that's their aspiration. So they do, they pay a lot of attention to what the prime mover, the number one gold standard does with an expectation that they will do, if not something similar, then something better. They'll come up with their own better rationale for the thing that they want to do that they think helps keep them competitive. So, it would be a mistake to think that a place that has a really secure endowment and is a high place in the pecking order, therefore, then be, does, becomes not competitive. They they are, I think, um, I think uh, Ralph um, put it best. He was, he was, he was, he was as our provost at one Consul? point. Yeah, Ralph Kunzel was, was, as our provost, was um, saying, you know, number one doesn't worry about U.S. News and World Report. And by and large, 50 and beyond doesn't worry about it either. Mm -hmm. all from number two to 49 they'd worry about almost nothing else they think about it all the time Mm -hmm. so that that competition is intense at that level competition i I think implies that people are, are engaging in SWOT analyses against each other and sort of enemies lists and dirty tricks i think there's a lot less of that than you might think they're not really i mean the people at Washington University are not really trying to think of ways to make it harder for Chicago or Northwestern to get a good class and vice versa, but they are trying to make themselves stand out in what they rightly think is a crowded field of good institutions, and they're trying to make that name and reputation for themselves in a way that is unique and on the oblique and and catches attention for itself, not just for students, but they're competing for faculty, they're competing for donors, they're competing for um, attention in the marketplace in any number of ways, and so they are positioning themselves very carefully. Why do you think Kofi is arranged around
0: the F in that acronym? Like, why this school? These schools are they could get together and talk about, and as you do, talk about pretty much everything. So, it, it, right, but that's the anchoring concept. Well, it is
1: the it is the anchoring concept. I'm bringing together, it was born out of a, um, uh, the the price fixing and collusion investigation that went on and so 70s.
0: was this Was kind of like an
1: anti-cartel cartel so, yeah, absolutely <laughs> so so prior prior to kofi
0: nonprofit cartel prior to
1: kofi basically the ivs were getting together and making sure that before they offered their financial aid packages and this is what is key they were deciding what those financial aid packages would be so it would be the same among them uh-huh. their 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 reason for doing that was at least according to the reports of people who were there at the time and and the analysis that went on at the time was basically pretty noble. They wanted to make it so that students didn't end up having to choose which college they went to based on how much it cost. Mm -hmm. That the cost would be the same, that then that your financial aid package would make sense. It would be the normal same thing from Harvard to Dartmouth to Yale to Princeton. That was Mm -hmm. their but that, as it turned out, was collusion and restraint of trade because they were they were fixing the price Behind the scenes with competitors before it went out to the buyer. So, is there some sunlight? I
0: guess the 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 fact that you share out the data that you that you compile um, in these meetings that guarantees that you're not all still doing that.
1: So they're not all still doing that because it's illegal. Well, yes. So when but when, when we're sitting in a cozy me a- meeting, there are very strict rules about what you can say about what your plans are for your financial. Especially for your financial aid policy, lawyers Here's
0: determine those rules.
1: There's there's a very careful set of rules about Kofi about what kind of dialogue you can have in the room. Interesting. So you are you can talk about everything you've done, but you can't talk about what you're going you're to do. Going to do. I see. Which is why it was it was it was sort of funny to me that when I announced that I had done this, you know, this really sort of silly, but fun that there was a freak out. That, yeah. Why didn't you tell, like, why so? you tell us? Why did you tell us? Like. I'm not supposed to tell Read you. Read the rules. Like necessarily. Although, you know, it's, it's really narrowly applied to, to financing. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, so, you know, you're, you're following a strict set of rules. So, no, there is no collusion anymore in that sense. There is still the phenomenon, and I think it's an entirely appropriate phenomenon, of colleges maybe choosing to match and align their financial aid awards after the fact. But that's okay because the consumer completely benefits from that. In other words, the consumer can say... Princeton gave me a package of 54000 Yale, you've only given me a package of 52000 What's the difference? And Yale can go back and look and say, oh, we figured out what Princeton figured out, and now you've got a package of $54,000. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. That's to the consumer's benefit. Got it.
0: In sum, let's say I'm sick and have somehow convinced you to fly in to attend the COMAC <laughs> high school college fair for me in April. Okay. And um, parents come up with a very, you know, eager student and they have this image, just, I'm not even going to say words, like just that you perceive this crippling fear around money. What's your message to
1: people like that? The sad part of this is the message has always been the same for all the Near between 30 and 35 years that I've been aware of this and talking about it, it's always been the same. It's always been true. It is no less real and factual and helpful, I think, than it ever has been. I don't know why the ante has gone up in terms of the anxiety because the, the answer has always been the same. It is possible always to find a way to finance the college education your child wants and needs at the institution where they are eligible to do it. It is always possible. And it is never impossible when a college is at least planning to meet need. It's there. It's built in. It's more or less automatic with very little variation. So be secure in that, that the mechanism is there. And when it's not, when when a college gaps or doesn't meet need for everybody, that's a published statement And you know that that's not a college you can count on. But if you're applying to and have a chance to get into a college that meets need, you're golden. You should be able to go with confidence that 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 is going to be what it works out. The details of what that need looks like and whether or not it fits your bill of how your idea of how much you'd like to keep versus how much you'd like to spend. That's a different question and you're going to have to come up with some answer for it. But there's no basis to be anxious about that. In other words, if your anxiety is caught up in your ability to keep things that you have that you don't need in order to not spend money on college, then that's not it's not fair for you to visit that anxiety in me. If your anxiety is about being able to buy a nice new car, at least a nice new car every four years, or take your European vacations, or anything else that's another kind of elective spending, and you're anxious because the college might stop you from doing that, I got no sympathy for you. You're not going to be required to sell your house, flat out not. Unless it makes sense to you to sell a house that you no longer need because it's too expensive and you're, or you're upside down in your mortgage or some other stupid reason for that. You're not going to have to go out and get a second job. Could that benefit you? Yes, but only for all the reasons that's good to go out and get a second job in general. In other words, that extra thirty thousand dollars you make by going and taking a second job on weekends, you're going to keep most of that money. It's not going to go to the college. So, basically stop being so anxious, is my main answer. It's not It's not legit. There's nothing real to it. And there's no evidence is real to it. The default rates at these colleges are not high. The loan debt in total has not expanded that much. The The opportunity for students to get a good college education at a wide variety of places at a wide variety of prices has never been greater. The value of a college education continues proving itself in all the ways that matter most. In terms of income and access to all the great opportunities that you want your children to have there is no there is nothing that has changed or gotten worse or gotten wrong than ever before thanks man you you got you got material you need this is gonna be
0: a a two-parter for sure (laughs) All right, so there you have it. An epic two hours on a whole lot of things related to the notion of money and college, how it works, what it does, who does it, where this is all headed one day. So we've been here long enough. I'll just wrap things up by reminding everybody, stay engaged. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. I'm getting marginally better at Twitter, at CrushPod. A quick note, program note. The show takes a break next week as I head out of town, but soon thereafter, I will be back with what uh, my colleague Jason has referred to as Fresh Crush. So keep your ears peeled. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time.